The text that you just read, Revelation chapter 21, comes at the end of the biblical story. And I think it's easy for us to think that Revelation is merely talking about what's going to happen at the end, and it is, but it's talking about the end in relation to the completion of the whole biblical story. In fact, if you were to look carefully at what Sue just read for us, you would find that all these themes are actually mentioned throughout the biblical story. The renewal of the creation is connected to the very beginning and purpose for which God made the world in Genesis 1 and 2. The establishment of a holy city is something God began to do, the building of a new people, beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. In contrast to the city of human kingdoms that arguably Cain first started and Babel or Babylon ultimately culminated in Genesis 11, God in Genesis 12 says, I will build my own city. That famous book by Augustine, The City of God, tells that story. Look at this language at the end of verse 2. That God prepared this place as a bride adorned for her husband. The language of wedding, marriage, the intimate relationship between God and his people, the bride of Christ, the church. Again, something the rest of the Bible talks about. Then verse 3, a loud voice from the throne. Again, think of the authority being spoken there, the power. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And Sue rightly emphasized, and they will be his people. A special people, God's people. The church gathered. And God himself will be with them as their God. And look at verse 4. Language we often read and hear at funerals. Again, is bringing to fruition all that God has promised. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. Do you, do you recognize that phrase? What, what, if, what, if, what if we used a slightly different translation than the ESV uses? Maybe like the NIV. It is finished. You heard that before? Jesus on the cross declaring it is finished, like Babe Ruth with the bat pointing to the outfield. Jesus, at the moment of his death, makes a statement that will come to fruition here at the end of human history. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Kids, those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am the A and the Z. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Again, he's not just talking about your mouth is dry and you are dehydrated. He's saying that inner longing for something that truly satisfies. And the one who conquers is victorious. The one who's aligned with Christ, the king, will have this heritage, inheritance, and I will be his God, and he will be 
my son or my daughter, my family. Look at the themes that come up here. Themes that begin at the beginning of the biblical story. Like the marriage between God and humanity. Like the family that exists between God the Father and His children as siblings. And the work that God is doing of His kingdom work. He's talking about things that aren't just future. They've already begun. Just as Jesus on the cross said, it is finished so also is the work that God is describing here already happening in the church. Proof of this is in some other texts. If we had time to look at them in detail, I just gave you a few in your notes. Kind of just a brief glimpse at the way the New Testament reflects on this work of the people of God, the church. Look over to 2 Corinthians. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation Right? What has already happened in you by faith in Christ is what will come to fruition that Revelation 21 talks about. The church of God that is sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart, anointed for serving Him and others, called to be saints together. And look, look how that's referring to the gathering of God's church. How about the Ephesians 2 text? You are fellow citizens with the saints. Do you think of yourself that way? Your citizenship is with these people and members of the household of God? Do you think of yourself as part of God's family? Or last, in Christ, Ephesians 2, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see how Revelation 21 shows the completion of that building? But it's already begun. Brothers and sisters, I give you Revelation 21 as the end of the story and these other texts to just simply say this this morning. Scripture does not distinguish between a Christian and the church. It doesn't, it doesn't allow you to separate those. For somebody who says, I am a Christian and a believer in Jesus Christ, but I'm not really seeing why or how I'm connected to the church, is not understanding at all what it means to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are assigned to the church. You belong to a local church. And quite simply, you are the church. But I need to explain that. This whole series has been part of that. We've needed to ask some who, what, and why questions. What isn't the church? What is the church? Why does the church exist? How does the church function? And finally today, what connects a Christian to a church? And I wanted to give you just a glimpse of Revelation 20 to show you where the story goes. Of God's gathered church, the marriage is complete, the family is gathered, the work is finished. But we're not there yet. It's been started but not finished. The Bible gives four metaphors, four mental pictures of the connection between the Christian and the church. And I want to give those to you today. In a sense, I'm taking what the Bible as a whole says. Like Revelation 21 gives a, the final conclusion of that. But I want to take what the Bible as a whole gives you and show you how those four images and mental pictures explain the connection between the Christian and their local church. But before I do, let me just pray and start this morning. Father, help us to hear from your word and the topics that your word raises regarding the people of God. And help us as Christians to see how this relates specifically to us. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here are the four biblical connections the Bible makes that explains the connection between a Christian and a local church. The first is this. You are Christ's bride. There's the mental picture. Notice, even at the end of the biblical story, verse 2, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And as Christ's bride, a church is where Christians are united to the Lord under the new covenant as his marriage partner. Now that can sound a little strange, because normally we think of marriage between a man and a woman, it's hard to think of marriage existing between all of us and God in some way. But I want to tell you, actually, you need to reverse the order. You need to take the horse and put it in front of the cart. Because rather than God using human marriage as a metaphor for the divine marriage, he actually formed human marriage from the picture of the divine union between us and God. The earthly covenant of marriage was made in the image of the eternal marriage that is intended to exist between Christ and his church. And that image is this beautiful portrait of language way back in the Old Testament. Listen to what God says, Isaiah 62, 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So in that image, God is saying, I am like a groom pursuing you to bring you into my family, to care for you, to sacrifice for you, to be your all. Several weddings have happened in this room. I've been part of several of those. And many times I've been standing right outside that door right there with a very nervous young man who's about to walk in and a bride down like the parting of the See of there would be an aisle here in the middle with a bride and her party out in the back about to enter in when the music starts. But as the music starts, a groom and his groomsmen are standing outside that door. And I've, I just have interesting memories of standing there and saying, okay, we're about to go in. And I'll look at the groom and say, are you ready? And one goes, are you kidding me? <laughs> or this kind of I don't know. You know, like you're just nervous. I mean, crying, like hand up, praying over. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty sacred moment. And walking and standing up here somewhere on this stage and seeing the groom standing down there and kind of looking at me and I'm just like, you're okay, man. You're good. And when those doors open and that bride comes down, you see the toughest and most manly men bust into a ball of tears when they see their bride coming down that aisle and they're just filled with all the emotion of Lord willing 50 years of life and family together. Now imagine God feeling that way toward you. That he made you, unlike this young man standing here before his bride, he actually has no need for you. It's not like you're adding something, like as if it's not good for man to be alone, but God is fully satisfied in his existence. He is absolutely complete. He's not needing of us at all. So even more than this husband who probably hasn't made his bed in months, doesn't know how to cook or clean well, lonely, need the companionship of one, that's not God. 
Yet God feels this way toward you. Listen to this statement here. This is God speaking to his people in the Old Testament. I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, he's rebuking his people. Jeremiah chapter 2. Remember when we were first wed? Remember that covenant I made with you? Where is that now? Why have you not been faithful to me, God says? Haven't I been faithful to you? Or how about the language of Hosea chapter 2? This is God talking about covenant language, like a marriage. I will make for them a covenant. I will betroth, old wedding language, right? I will betroth you to me forever. So you hear Hosea, Hosea 2 where God makes the promise. There then in Revelation, it's done. The bride is adorned. The doors are opened. The kingdom begins. There is Christ having clothed his bride in righteousness. And even he is emotional about all of the good gifts that he's given to her. That is the image that our human weddings copy. Human marriage is like a tutor, like a, a teacher. It points us toward Christ and his church. And it serves as a temporary institution that administers God's common grace. That's why human marriages are a temporary means for us to care and help one another. But they will ultimately end because we are the bride of Christ. So when the Bible speaks this way, it is speaking about how individual Christians participate in the gathered church. They participate as the body of Christ. This is where they covenant before the Lord. There should be no divorces here. God has been faithful to us. Are we faithful to our marriage covenant to him? We are his marriage partner, collectively as such. There's no longer two, but one flesh, the body of Christ, a new creation, a new family. Oh, by the way, just like human marriages, there is a ceremony that the church acknowledges, a ceremony of initiation, and guess what it is? Baptism. A sacred, sacred ceremony of this individual initiation into the bride of Christ, where they are buried and raised with Christ, and we as the people of God, the witnesses, celebrate this union because it's a union in which we also participate. So the local church, brothers and sisters, is where the vertical connection to God is established and maintained for the Christian. It is that marriage covenant lived out. To do Christianity and not to do church is to basically be married through something like Facebook. It's to have all the statements and maybe even some pictures, but to not physically be living as husband and wife. You are the, Christ, the bride of Christ his marriage partner. A second theme the Bible gives is that we are the Father's children. This means that a church is where Christians live with and love one another as members of God's family. So just like a regular marriage that Lord willing can yield little boys and little girls who are blessings, common grace, gifts, extension of the family so that Marriage between Christ and the church turns into a family of all these siblings. When a person becomes a Christian, God, by his gracious and hospitable providence, has a family 
for that person to join and live with immediately his or her local church. Yesterday, I was away and I saw a mom with a very new baby. I didn't even get a chance to talk to her, but I saw this tiny little thing with the tiniest little feet. And for a good couple of hours, I was near this mom, and there was a dad, there were some other kids, and there was a little baby. And I would guess, just because out of the corner of my eye, I could see the movement, that baby probably got a thousand kisses from that, little, from that mom. Hugs and kisses and everything that that baby, would, you would hope, would get. Loaded with love. Little brother coming up and giving the little baby kisses on his head, and dad blocking from eye pokes and things like that. Dad holding for a while, giving hugs and kisses. And in God's gracious providence, guess what? When that baby was born, there was immediately a loving family to take that child in. Now, imagine the story if that little baby was born and there was no mom and dad. Like immediately your heart sinks. You're like, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be, right? That's not the way it's supposed to be. Or even just a partial story. Like the mom is there, but the dad is gone. No interest in that little kid. And the siblings don't talk to the little kid and have no interest. Like, you would look at that and say, well, it's meaningless, right? Like, there really isn't a necessary connection between a baby and a family. You would immediately say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, if both the mother and the father neglect this little baby, the government would actually step in. Like, DCFS would be contacted. Maybe orphanages would be involved. Maybe someone would adopt the family because there's not supposed to be a little baby with all this new life and dependence and needs that doesn't have a family that they're supposed to go to. And when that doesn't happen, we say that's broken, Brothers and sisters, that happens to the church, the Christians, all the time. That they get this new birth, and, and they can't even eat meat yet. They're on like spiritual milk. And they totally have this family that God has made for them to be nurtured and cared for and loved and supported, raised up in the Lord. That connection is just as important, and Scripture makes it clear. Sadly, the church family shows the same Divisions, detachments, departures, divorces that even happen in the human family. It is in the local church where the horizontal connection to God's people is expressed and lived out for the Christian. If the bride of Christ imagery explains the vertical connection, the father's children imagery explains the horizontal, that we are members of God's family. Ken and Trudy worked with, Ken worked with me at Biola nine years. Uh, he was a, just a lovely man. Grew up out in New York area. Ended up becoming a missionary. Went, learned Turkish to go to Muslim Turkey to minister for somewhere near a decade. Came back to the East Coast. Finished his theological training. And now for, I think this year is his 20th year teaching primarily undergraduates at Biola University out in California. And for most of my nine years, my office was right next to his. Several times in between classes, we'd be eating leftovers from dinner last night or a sandwich, and we'd just be chatting. I remember the day he walked into my office. Again, this is several years ago now. And he said, hey, you got a minute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just eating lunch, shooting the breeze. We had about 20 or 25 minutes before the next class that we each had to go to. And he's like, well, I'd like you to be praying for me because Trudy and I were... We're trying to figure out what we're going to do because because at that point, his two daughters had just kind of, his youngest daughter just went to college. So at that point, they were in a sense, they were kind of empty nesters. Like there just weren't the same needs for him and his wife with his two daughters. One was about a senior in college, and then he had one that was a freshman. 
So Ken begins to explain, we've spent all summer praying, Lord, how do you want us to use our extra time and resources? Again, interesting default, isn't it? He wasn't just thinking empty nest, baby, freedom. He was like, Lord, we want to be faithful to what we have. What will you have us do? And he and Trudy decided they, they really felt like there was more they could give in the role of parenting, in the realm of parenting. They weren't sure they wanted a newborn baby at their age they were, but I, they could take some younger kids. They had a good decade left in them. So that's what they did. They went to the LA foster system and they ended up adopting two little girls. And the story of that is phenomenal. They spent six months, I mean, here they raised two healthy, bright, competent girls. They had to take classes in safety for knives and kitchens. They had to take CPR, all the, jump through all the hoops that you can imagine how many of us would say, no way, but they weren't doing it for the LA County. They were doing it for the two little girls that would eventually be handed over to their home. They spent six months and I don't know what, $10,000 doing all of those things to finally when they were slotted with two little girls. Both of them were found in a van on the side of the road when they were younger. There was no dad. The mom was in this flea and lice-infested van. The mom was totally overdosed on drugs. And laying across her lap was this six- and four-year-old girls, two sisters. They were put in a foster care system, and they'd been there for a good 12 to 18 months until, in God's perfect providence, this sweet couple that gets free college education, by the way, adopted those little girls. I think they were about eight and six or so at the time. They told the story when they went to this L.A. foster house for the first time to visit with the girls. It was a house with maybe 10 or 12 kids and very uninterested foster parent. It just felt like chaos. And the two little girls were hiding behind the kitchen counter when Ken and Trudy sat at the kitchen table, and Trudy brought this plate of chocolate chip cookies. Good bribery. And the two, he, Ken says the two little girls kind of peeked their heads out around the corner of the counter to see who these potential parents would be. And eventually the social worker got the girls to come up, and the girls come up, and they're just kind of very quiet, and they got excited when they saw the cookie. And at one point, the older girl put her hand on Trudy's leg and looked up at her face and said this question, just a remarkable question, this little eight-year-old girl. So you want to be my mommy? I feel the load of that. This picture of a little girl. Last year, remembers her mom was completely unconscious and drugs in a van on the side of a road in downtown L.A. And she spent 12 to 18 months in a foster care system with all these kids. And then I don't know if the Lord could have picked two of the sweetest most gentle people to walk into that home with cookies. And Trudy hears that question, breaks up, trying to hold back tears. That's exactly, see, that's exactly what she's been praying about for this whole process. Lord, use my life and let it be a sacrificial offering to thee. And so she looked down at this little girl and said, if you'll have me, I'd want to be your mommy. And she goes, okay. And can I have another cookie? <laughs> Ken and Trudy did something beautiful. They had this home that had raised two girls. Both of them were in college. Like I said, the oldest, I think, was a senior at the time. 
might have actually graduated before the adoption took place. They did not want these girls walking to a home that didn't feel like it was already their home. They had a friend photographer at church, professional photographer who did this to believe for free, went before they could adopt them legally, went to that orphanage home, that foster home, took pictures. The, the two older sisters went with the biological daughters. They took individual pictures, family pictures, sister pictures. The Ken and Trudy went back to their house, took down every picture that was just those biological two girls. And the only pictures in the home were pictures that included all four girls. Ken says, I have four girls, not two. He did not want them coming in and seeing anything that didn't look like they fully belonged in this house. In fact, he goes, there's only one kind of sad part. There was this professional painter who painted a portrait of his two biological girls when they were like five and three. It was gone. It was carefully wrapped and put in to a space. He was not going to have anything but four daughters. How beautiful is that? Welcome to the church. The human family, by the way, models the template of the heavenly plan. The local church is where God's people live as the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And immediately those two little girls who had never had a normal home had family suppers and two older sisters and a loving mom and a loving dad and a horde of college students willing to babysit in a community already designed that they would fit in. And every wall that had a picture of a kid included them. Had They'd never had their picture taken. They'd never seen their picture in a frame. They'd never had a family dinner. And now that's the norm. So that's not just a, that's not just a, a cool metaphor. That's the design of the church. Notice the intentionality of Ken and Trudy. Notice the hoops they jump through. Notice, notice even the older sisters. Notice the pictures, the way the house is designed, the special gatherings, the language they would use. I have four daughters. Like all of that was intentional to include what was ultimately true. The church is the children of the Father, where a Christian lives with and loves one another as members of God's family. Oh, by the way, there's a ceremony for that too. Just as there's a wedding ceremony in the church, baptism, there's a family ceremony called Lord's Supper. The ceremony that reflects the communion between brothers and sisters in the church. If you think it would be shameful for a dad or a mom or a kid to regularly avoid family dinners, then you should be just as offended when your brothers and sisters do so at the Lord's table. Because you are the family of God. The last two images are somewhat related. The third one is that we are Christ's body. And the church is where Christians are assigned to care for and serve one another as ministry associates. The ministry of a church is the ministry of its people. Dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people, each of whom bring their gifts their talents, their training, their resources, their experience to serve the church and the community. Remember Ephesians 4.12? We've spoken of this text before. God has given pastors and elders and apostles to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
The Bible will not let Christians separate their Christianity from the local church. They, they won't even let you. You can't do Christianity without doing local church. Paul makes it explicit in Romans 12, 5, where he describes individual Christians in the church as individually parts of one another, like, like you're a body. That, that image of Christ's body is where he's going. You literally belong together. Like a human body, a local church is a collection of useful and necessary body parts. You can't cut one off and expect it to survive. Try it. Take one of your trees. Kids, don't do this to your mom's favorite plants. But go ahead, take, take, take some tree, something that's a small branch, cut it off, put the branch aside, and see if by spring it's still living. How much life does it have in five, six months? Now imagine doing that to a Christian, completely cutting them off from the body of Christ, from the fellowship of the saints, from the work of ministry, from the preaching of God's word, from the singing together. Cut them off or let them remove themselves and see how vibrant in living they are in six months or six years. You are literally called to care for and serve your church and the church members. You're literally called. King Jesus has commanded you to serve the body of Christ. You are called. That's, that's God's will for your life. He, he, I may not be able to say to you God's will regarding who you should marry or at college or should I take a different job or which neighborhood we live in. I don't know God's specific will, but his general will is clear in Scripture. God has commanded you to love God, love neighbor, and love one another because you are the body of Christ and you are ministry associates of a local church. You are assigned. Now there's a ceremony for that as well, church membership. But we welcome you as part of the body and you commit to us and we commit to you with regular accountability and participation together. And you're part of this church, attending, befriending, receiving, serving, giving, all of the aspects of a healthy dynamic, just like any human family, but this time in the church, which is actually the model for what the human family is. The last metaphor is Christ's ambassadors. A church is where Christians participate in mission in the community and the world as missionary associates. We are a missionary outpost. We're an embassy of the kingdom of God. And your work in the world as a missionary, this is your headquarters. This is your home base. This is your supporting agency. Think of this. This is a cool thing to think about. God is using very average local churches full of very regular Christians to declare to the world the most amazing news ever. If you are a Christian, you are assigned to declare in word and deed the greatness of Jesus in your community. You are a missionary associate of this church. And when you're here and present, whether it's serving with our kids or teaching in a growth hour or serving as a on the diaconate or trustee board or helping set up chairs or doing some of the cleaning or serving in the tech even now or watching some of our children this very moment or helping with food on a Wednesday night, you are serving as a ministry associate. When you are talking to your coworker, inviting them to 
an Easter service and sharing the gospel, helping minister a community little Bible study, you are being a missionary associate sent out and supported by this church. The Bible won't let Christians separate their Christianity from the local church. Your personal evangelism, your common grace acts of compassion, your missions, trips, and work, your giving and support for what God is doing here and around the world is directly connected to your local church. Again, the ceremony that reflects both ministry associates and missionary associates is church membership. Under the new covenant, your local church is where you are employed to do gospel ministry. So try to separate those. I wonder if maybe the question is wrong. Instead of asking what connects a Christian to a church, maybe I could have just said, can you have any evidence in Scripture that they're disconnected? Like, can you think of any place where God's like, eh, not that important? Yet we live that way, and you don't do it like that as family. When you see a kid without a mom or a dad, your heart breaks. Do you break for those who do so without a church family? On Wednesday, I was at Javon Bay with my mom. And we'd been told there was a good chance that she had a form of cancer. And confirmation came Wednesday morning that she does. And those are interesting, difficult, emotional times. She was very scared. And can you imagine, and very, very nervous, and can you imagine if I just like, yeah, Ma, just tell me how it goes. Give, give me a text. Let me know how it went. Rather than me taking the day off of work, being with her early in the morning, driving her to the hospital, making sure she's good and ready to go, waiting for her as she comes out, talking with the doctor after a procedure, and being there when she comes back. And she knew the doctor had talked to me, but she didn't know exactly what he'd said, and so she pulled, they pull her back into the room, and she's laying in the bed, and I'm sitting in this tiny little plain room there at that hospital, Javon Bay, and my mom looks at me and says, so what'd they say? And I say, Mom, you, our God is sovereign over this whole universe. And every little carbon and electron in your body is sustained by his gracious providence and will. And the doctors have said that you officially do have cancer. And I saw her close her eyes squeezed my hand tight, and I sat next to her, and we prayed, and we talked. We talked about God. We talked about life. We talked about death. Did you know that we live in a death-averse culture, maybe one of the most reticent to deal with death in human history? We don't even call it funeral anymore. We call it celebration of life because we don't want to deal with death. We don't want to see a body. We want it to be cremated, gone. We like, the, we like things young and new and fresh. We don't like things old. Out with the old, in with the new. It's got to be new. It's got to be fresh. We don't like the old. We don't want to talk about dying. Health and health products are booming. Only thing that can, wins more is probably sports, money than we spend on health. It's a kind of religion, isn't it? It's a kind of eternal life in a sense. So we talked about death. I told my mom, I said, 
we had talked, I shared with her what Augustine said, which I found so helpful. Augustine, Augustine taught that just as we give our souls to Christ, so our last act of obedience is resigning our body to the king. And that is hard to do. And so we talked about death, and we cried. We talked about talking to the grandkids. We talked about calling extended family. We talked about the long process of trips up to Madison that we will now begin. Now imagine if I hadn't been at Javon Bay on Wednesday. In fact, if you'd known that my mom was going to be there and she was going to get that information by, her, by herself, would you not have been a little frustrated with me if I hadn't been there holding her hand? Wouldn't you just immediately thought, well, what, dude, what are you doing? Is an email that important? Like, was that, was that meeting so important you're not going to be sitting there next to your mom? Now imagine the king of the universe saying to you, your family needs you. Oh, not just the people you humanly married in human covenants and the children you gave birth to and raised, they need you too. But your church family needs you. Because you know what? Just in these two services, as I scan the room, first and second service, there are people sitting in that room with cancer in their body just like my mom. There are adult children with parents with cancer in their body just like I'm an adult child with a mom with cancer in hers. And guess who needs you? Well, they do. And you're called, not just suggested, hey, if you have time. No, no, there was no suggestion for me on Wednesday at Javon Bay. And over and over, my mom said, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so, and I kept thinking, where else would I be on Wednesday morning other than Javon Bay? Where else would I have gone? Brothers and sisters, on Sunday morning, where else are you going to be? And who else are you going to be with? And to what else are you going to commit yourself and serve? Because you belong to Christ. And he said, it is done. And one day it will be fully gone. But until then, you are the bride of Christ, the children of the Father, the body of Christ, and ambassadors of King Jesus. And you declare in word and deed what is good and true. And you love your siblings. You love the church. You give sacrificially. You receive its ministry. You serve in capacities, in formal institutional ways, and in all the organic connections. You live as the body of Christ and as the children of the Father through thick and thin. You support those who need support. You love those who need love. And when the world looks, as Jesus says in John 13, that love for one another, they will know you are his disciples because you look different. That doctor knew that I was the son of Kimberly Grace Clink. He knew it because I was right there. And people will know you're disciples of Jesus when they see you being the church. So what's the connection between a Christian and a church, what's the connection between Mickey Clink and Kim Clink? What's the connection between brothers and sisters in Christ? What's the connection between this kingdom outpost and the missionary work in the world? Your local church is the primary place in people where your relationship with God happens, where your relationship with Christian family happens, and where you are assigned to do ministry and mission 
Any more questions? Because you are the church. And for births and for deaths and for everything in between, we wait on King Jesus. Who said what? That He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Guess what? That means cancer. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For he who sits on the throne says, I am making all things new. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And they will be my children. And to think that the church is the start of that until God makes good on all of its parts is amazing. Let's pray. Father, help us to feel this morning the connection between the Christian and the church, to feel it in our very bodies, that your spirit would be aligning these truths with our wills, that we would be a people who love God love neighbor and love one another as the body of Christ, as the Father's children, as the bride of Christ, and as your ambassadors, that we'd be ministry and missionary associates in this place, fellow siblings. Father, I pray that anyone here today who hears your words, who doesn't see the significance of the local church will have their mind changed by your spirit. For those that have been hesitant to fully plug in and engage, to be healthily present, to be receiving, to be serving, to be supporting and giving, the Father, that you would direct them in the ways that you see fit by your spirit. Father, those who need the love and care of the church family, that you would open others' eyes or that they would feel comfortable sharing with their brothers and sisters. We thank you for your word, which guides us to see what is true about us in the world and ultimately about the church. Father, receive this closing song as our praise of thanks to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.